Aren't you a little short for a stormtrooper? What's up, nerds? Welcome to a very special episode of the Multiverse Report. Not a regular episode of the Multiverse Report. That's right. This is another series, another episode in our series of TMR Talks. The Multiverse Report Talks, another interview. Steve, this is a big one, my friend. Indeed it was. G. Willow Wilson, herself. Eisner Award winning writer of many a many a fine comic book if i yeah. do say so myself steve absolutely um a thrill an absolute thrill to talk to her and she was great she was in the mood to talk and yeah it was a great conversation of, it was a great conversation it was a great talk i was nervous about it um up until she showed up on the screen and i was like oh this is just a regular person that i'm gonna have a conversation with like you know like immediately evaporated all my nervousness as soon as i said hi to her i was like yeah. oh okay yeah we're just gonna talk it was great funny was how great. that happens yep um uh those of you maybe maybe more unfamiliar with her work uh, as i said she's an eisner award-winning comic book writer novelist and essayist as well uh her works include such graphic novels as cairo a comic book series called air invisible kingdom the current ongoing Hunger in the Dusk, as well as the uh, recently GLAD-nominated uh, series Poison Ivy. Uh, yep, won the Comics. GLAD last year and is it nominated again this year. Is nominated this year, that's right. Um, she's also, probably the thing she's most known for, she's the co-creator of Kamala Khan, Ms. Marvel. We talked to her a lot about that as well, plus all that other stuff. She's also written, um, you know, little characters like Superman, Wonder Woman, um had a, had a couple uh, couple x-men uh issues in there yep read uh, a couple other stuff at marvel she's also done um neil gaiman's the dreaming in the sandman universe and much much more we only had her for a limited amount of time we definitely could have talked to her longer i had other questions i wanted to get to and you know we didn't talk to her much about Invisible Kingdom, which is a series that I just started reading that I think is great. And, you know, Air is a much acclaimed uh, series from her and Sandman stuff. But, you know, I think we uh, we stuck to we stuck to the hits. Yeah. And uh, we got a lot of good stuff out of her, including um, the uh, the IDW uh, currently running Hunger in the Dusk, which uh, anybody who's a listener has heard me sing the praises of. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, yeah. Um, I love she referred to it and she'll, you'll hear it in the interview. She refers to it as a hot orc book. Yes. Um, and I think, uh, I think we got to get that hashtag trending hashtag hot or book. Let's get <laughs> Absolutely. on that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so yeah, we loved it. We had a great time. Uh, she was great. And, uh, we hope that, uh, you enjoy listening to our conversation with if you G. Do. Willow Wilson. Yeah. And you're about to do the same plugs that I was probably about to do, Steve. So go ahead. <laughs> Old habits die hard, Mike. Yeah, if you uh if you do enjoy it, if you don't enjoy it, feel free to uh you know keep <laughs> continuing way. to look us up uh on socials, the multiverse report, uh on YouTube, the multiverse report, seeing you're probably watching this, so you probably have figured this out at that point. Um mm-hmm. on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. We'll uh we'll we'll you know throw you a bone. Uh, I think yeah. think there may be some uh, uh Keep uh, your eyes on the space for possibly a promo involving um, reviews coming up here uh, shortly. Yeah. But um, yeah, uh, get a hold of us offline and we'll talk to you there. Yeah. And also, uh, she mentions this at the end of the interview, but uh, the first collection of Hunger in the Dusk is going to be out uh, this summer. Yes. Sometime, I believe. First two volumes of Poison Ivy are out. And the third one it's, is on its way. And a lot of the other work that uh, I mentioned and that we will talk about is already available in uh, collected editions or trade paperback. So check all those things out. If you hear us talking about something that sounds good, go grab it because she's a great writer. And if her name is on it, it's going to be good. Yeah. And I don't know if she mentioned it, but you can usually find uh, if you're looking for her on the socials, it's usually this is GWW. Yep. Yeah. Uh, You know, she has a a, a unique name. So she's easily Googleable on most of the socials. And I know that she's on Blue Sky. She's on Threads. She used to be on Twitter, but like uh, so much of us, we have uh, jumped off of that uh, hellscape. So I believe she's on Instagram as well. So yeah. uh, look her up. Look her up, people. It's a good follow. And it's a good interview. And we hope you enjoy our talk with the one and only G. Willow Wilson. All right. G. Willow Wilson, welcome to the Multiverse Report. Thanks for having me. 
We are huge fans of yours. We talk about your work all the time on this podcast, and we're just really excited to have you here to to dig in. Yeah, I'm excited. Oh, great, great to be here. Um, first of all, for those uh, we talked about this just briefly off mic, but um, for those that may be wondering, you do go by Willow. Uh, yes yeah yeah, like the tree yeah as as we were talking about i tell people the g is silent it stands for gwendolyn which um was a very long thing to call a small child and so i only ever heard it when i was in trouble or at the doctor's office so yeah (laughs) it just hangs out there being an initial yeah it's like a lot of kids know they hear their middle name then they gotta you know that it's bad yeah (laughs) Yeah, exactly same idea exactly yeah yeah um so born in new jersey is that correct that's what right. Part, Monmouth what, County. Part in, what county? Monmouth County, which Monmouth is famous county. for Asbury Park. Um, oh, sure. Where we never went. <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough, uh, back then it was considered, uh, you know, kind of a not so safe place to go, and, and sure. uh, yeah. you know, a little bit, a little bit sketchy. So it was like this mythological place that was sure. super close and that nobody went to. No one was allowed but to that go. is usually what people think of when they hear Monmouth County, if they know New Jersey. Sure. Yeah. Um, probably uh, got a bad rap for being in all those uh, Bruce Springsteen songs about. Crime. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, in Seattle now, is that correct? Or somewhere on the, yep, that's right. the Northwest? Yep. Is that just a uh, getting as far away from my hometown as I possibly can kind of thing? Or? No, no, not at all. <laughs> no, you know, it was kind of a process of elimination. Um my husband and I moved out here after we came to the U.S. from uh, Egypt, and uh, he didn't want to be anywhere where it snowed all winter long or was icy all the time. Mm. So that ruled out a huge chunk of the Midwest and the Northeast. Uh, California was super expensive. And yeah. at the time, this is now, my God, this is now like, what, 15 years ago. Um at the time, Seattle was significantly more affordable than a lot of other big cities on the West Coast. Uh, <laughs> that is no I longer the case, but it was when we moved out here. So it started as kind of a practical uh, consideration. But, um, you know, I'd, I've steadily fallen in love over the years. Now I've kind of put down tap roots and sure. not sure I'm going anywhere. Go. Yeah, sure. Uh, I've never been, but I've heard wonderful things about it. I've um, never been either, but as a fellow uh, diehard Sounders fan, I uh, I do uh, plan on making it out that way at some point. So. Oh, you have to. Yep. Yes, you have to. Well, you're going to have a lot of opportunities because we are one of the host cities for the 2026 World Cup. So, you know, it's right. it's there's going to be a lot of soccer in this town. Oh, yeah. that's I've got a cousin south of the city and in-laws north of the city. So I'm going to find some way out there for either That's a great. Sounders match or something for the cup. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to make a pilgrimage. There you for go. Sure. Um, so growing up in New Jersey, were you into uh, comics as a kid? Were you uh, drawn to superheroes or if not, what brought you into that kind of world? Yeah, I was. Um, yeah, I was, I was a big comics nerd as a kid. Uh, you know, like a lot of nineties kids, I was super into the, animated the original animated x-men series that was on fox every saturday morning yep uh mm-hmm. you know i lived uh not far from a hobby shop that sold kind of two of my favorite things one was comics the other was model horses uh so you know <laughs> it was just kind of in the atmosphere for me very early on um it wasn't until i got a bit older that i started looking at comics from a craft perspective and thinking gosh how do these things get made you know like what what is the breakdown of work and storytelling and who does what um as a kid you know it was sort of like they they came into being spontaneously on spinner racks uh just to sort of eat through your allowance money but uh no yeah I've always been a a comics a comics geek in fact one of my one of my earliest pop culture memories you know people will talk about like what episode of the Simpsons they first saw or this or that and the other or where they were for the final episode of Blossom or what have you. I'm right. dating myself yeah. here. But uh one of the first pop culture events I can remember from my childhood was the death of Superman. Oh, so yeah. that's kind of where my <laughs> kind of where my head was at. Yeah, same for me. I remember I've always had a relationship with comics where I I I go in and out where like I dive in for a long time and then I kind of pull back and I'm I'm Death of Superman was one of those for me where 
I was I read them when I was a little kid and I was like a little bit older. I was probably like well, that was in like 92. So I was like probably 10 mm-hmm. uh, when that happened. And I was like, oh, this is like that was the first time I knew about an event comic. Like this right. is like a yeah. big story that I have to follow all of these things. And, you know, it was explosive. So, yeah, I definitely understand that as well. Um, but I feel like a lot of people, I feel like it's definitely a different step in reading a comic and just enjoying the adventure and like what you said thinking about it from a craft standpoint i don't think for me i probably wasn't until i was in college before i started being like oh wait i recognize that writer's name from that other book that i read or that this colorist is the same colorist over here or whatever like that but so you said you started thinking about that pretty early on uh yeah i mean it was probably about the same age you know like Mm -hmm later on in high school uh, and and sort of earlier on in college, this was sort of the the heyday of creator forums. Uh, You know, like this is before social media as we know it, but it was back when, you know, Brian Bendis had a huge forum and Warren Ellis and all of these people. Um, So I think for the first time, behind the scenes looks at how the sausage gets made in comics were readily available kind of to whoever cared to look which was good because also around that same time there were no classes you could take you know now you can you can actually go to school for this stuff and and take a class on scripting comics or drawing sequential art or or what have you um but back then at least in the united states there was really nothing um so you know i i started maybe in my late teens trying to kind of self-teach how you break down you know a comic book and 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 how you create one uh, I did a lot of reverse engineering of things mm-hmm. um you know I would I would take old old floppies and trade paperbacks that I'd read a million times I'm not precious about my books I do not keep them in in pristine condition they're all dog-eared Good. uh but on some of the older ones I would actually number the panels per page to say oh. like okay how many how many panels does this action take to communicate what is the transition between pages in this scene? Uh, you know, how does this work? So, yeah, it became sort of a te- technical challenge in that I started to get interested in in how to tell these stories in this medium, and uh, and 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 yeah, just sort of tried to figure out by reverse engineering what all my favorite books had in common. Uh, you know, how you could sort of control the the pace at which the reader experiences the story story via compression or decompression yeah uh you know alan moore and and a lot of other creators of that era were famous for sort of slow-mo scenes in which you know you might have nine panels of like a bullet leaving a gun and there's you know this really deep sort of captions pontificating about the nature of life and death and stuff like that so yeah um you know, there was a lot to draw from. And it was a very, uh, you know, as you know, I think we're about the same age. It was a very uh, experimental time where a lot of people were doing some creative, interesting things, breaking the fourth wall and 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 doing different things with formatting uh, that were really, I think, a good education for, yeah. for anybody who was interested in the medium to sort of figure out where the limits were and how to get past them. Yeah, for sure. Like, um, I remember, I, I don't remember exactly what issue it was, but I remember you know, having read or seen older, say, Spider-Man comics or Batman comics or whatever, where everything is within the grid. And then the first time I saw Spider-Man, I was like, oh, he's swinging out of the panel. <laughs> like, that's yeah. mind-blowing yeah. to me. Yeah. It's like he's coming. Right. Me. It's great. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. Or like the yeah. web line would be out of the panel or something like that, like that kind of stuff. Um, and I, I love you're saying things like the counting the number of panels and stuff like that. I'm a fledgling comic book writer myself and when I started getting it when I started writing my first book it was exactly that kind of stuff like oh I've never really thought about how uh you know writing a comic isn't right like writing a movie you have to con- you have to contend with a certain amount of like physical space that you have to tell mm-hmm. the story and what you know I say to people all the time you can't just say a person walks up to a house and rings a doorbell you have to like well do I show them? That's two different actions. Yeah. Exactly. Do I show them on the street? Do I show them on the sidewalk? Do I show them already at the door? Like, what's the most important way to go about it? A lot of people don't think that way about books. It's like... psychological. You know, a lot of it is, I think, psychology. You have to kind of get a feel for 
how much the reader's brain will fill in between the panels. Uh, So, you know, like what can you show in one panel versus what takes three or four or five, Um, you know, and we were talking about decompression. You you can stretch that out as long as you like, Um, but you can only compress it a certain amount and and sort of figuring out that pacing is, I think, uh, you know, really one of the key elements that makes writing for comic books different from writing for any other medium. Yeah, it's funny. I'm reading. Sure. Uh, currently, I'm, I'm doing the uh, ever stupid thousand comic books in the year of 2024. And New currently, re- yeah, it, I don't know how or why I decided to do this, but uh, <laughs> but currently going back through like early Claremont, uh, like early Claremont X-Men. And it's like it, hearing what you're saying about the the perfectly laid out grid and everything and the pacing between the tiles and him like they back then especially laid out everything bit by bit by bit like yeah i feel like claremont compared to most allowed you to fill in that information on your own but it was still compared to like modern books a very rigid stylistic uh you know approach to it and it, it's you know really weird to think about like now it's funny now talking to mike week in week out on how he's thinking about stuff it's like a, a very different way for me to approach books going back into them now yeah like, yeah. Once you learn, like, sure. a, once you start thinking about that stuff, you right. can't toothpaste not go back see into it tube. when you're yeah. when you can't pay attention. Yeah, to, you can't, can't turn pay it off. To it. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um. So, how uh how does Cairo come about? Cairo's your first book published by Vertigo under DC. Is that correct? Had you done any writing previously, or is that just first? Yeah, I had. Game? It's it's actually it was actually my third book. Weirdly oh, enough. Okay. Um. But you know the the first two things I wrote were very much journeyman things that mm. that you know are kind of lost in the midst of time i did an sure. aquaman metamorpho one shot oh wow for the outsiders uh with joan hilty she was the editor of that um and i did gosh what else did i do i did like a five issue mini series of vixen um yep. you know so you know small sort of fill-in things where it's like okay, okay we have this little spin-off thing on the books and this is it used to be, I, I hope it still is, it's, it's, things are getting stranger and stranger, but that used right. to be the way that newer writers and artists would sort of get in is what you would have this book, um, you know, or, or a little fill in issue or something uh, that nobody else really had time for. And that was where you kind of proved that you could take an Aquaman metamorpho crossover and sure. make it decently readable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'd been doing a couple of small things here and there. Uh, when I got uh, Cairo, but that came out of, uh, you know, living and working in the city. Um, and, you know, I'm one of these people who is sort of deeply influenced by my environment. It, it sure. really tends to dictate what kinds of stuff I write. Um, and so, you know, when I was living in Cairo, that's that's basically all I wrote about, uh, sure. you know, sort yeah. of across media. And it was, a, yeah, just kind of a story that that spun out of uh, you know, my time in the city and sort of drawing the past and the present together in a way that I think is really unique to cities that are that old. Yeah. Um, and it was a chance to work with the legendary Karen Berger at Vertigo, who, you know, speaking of of icons, was, um, you know, the person who'd edited all of these books that I had adored as a gothy teen, <laughs> you know, in the in the in the nineties and the and the very early two thousands. Um, so, you know, yeah, that was a, that was a great opportunity to, to sort of not only meet your, your heroes, but work with them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and speaking of that, um, Cairo is a great book, by the way, it's really excellent. Um, and I just, I went well, the first time I read it, I didn't know that there was any kind of like fantasy element to it at all. And I just thought that it was going to be like an adventure. And then I was like, Oh, whoa, there's a genie. That's amazing. <laughs> it just came out. It was that's, just that's, really you great. pretty much yeah. summarized my, my shtick. Like that's, yeah. that's what a lot of my work is. It's like, you have, yeah, it seems like you're sort of reading a normal sort of day-to-day whatever. And then all of a sudden there's a genie or a dragon right. or something yeah. shows up. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. The um, but speaking of uh, meeting your heroes, I noticed um, when, this time that it, when I read it uh, to prep for this uh, interview, um, that's partially dedicated to the great Keith Giffen, who just recently passed away last year. It says that he believed yeah. in this book. What was your connection with Keith regarding Cairo? Yeah, no, Keith was so wonderful. Um, 
I met him when I was interning for one of the very early, in fact, way, 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 way ahead of its time, digital comic book companies that no longer exists. Hmm. Uh, this was before tablets. And nobody was really keen on lugging their giant oversized, you know, desktop computers to, to bed to curl up and read a comic book. Right. Uh, so it didn't really go anywhere. Uh, but it was how I was able to meet uh, a lot of people who were sort of industry legends. And Keith in particular is just such a wonderful, funny guy, extremely generous with his time, you know, sort of one of the old industry pros who pretends to be a curmudgeon, but is actually a big softy. Oh. Um, and you know, I was, I was in college at that point. I was, I was really young. Um, and I had just gone, uh, to my very first San Diego comic-con and I, you know, met him there in person and I was showing him some of the like very early scripts I was working on and he was like, hey, you know, keep going. Um, but we stayed in touch after I moved to Cairo and I started sort of emailing him bits of script and he was like, you know what, this is, this is pretty good. Can I show this to my editor who was Joan Hilty uh, at DC? And I was like, yes, please. Oh my God, that's incredible. Uh, and so he, he showed those bits of script uh, to Joan and the rest is oh, kind wow. of history. But yeah, he was, he was very much, um, you know, a mentor to me, uh, uh, you know, when, when I was really literally just a kid you know I had no yeah. I had no bylines uh you know like there was there was nothing on the horizon um and he was just yeah really really kind and generous with his time and um I still you know I, I hadn't seen him in probably five or six years and so I haven't really internalized the fact that he's not here anymore I know yeah uh and I'm waiting it's, it's gonna be when I'm in San Diego or something and I'm thinking like, oh my God, Keith would love this, that I'm yeah. going to go, oh, I can't, I can't call him. I can't email him. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I haven't internalized it. I, I still have not internalized it. Yeah. Um, well, that's great to hear. I mean, he was uh, such a great uh, creator and so valuable to the industry as well. And, you know, kind of like what you, things similar to what you said just came pouring out kind of after the news of his uh, passing, just about how wonderful and generous of a person he was. So it's, um, it's great, yeah, to, hear, he did great not, to hear it he, firsthand. He, he didn't blow his own horn. Yeah. He was not one of these people who was like, I discovered so-and-so, or I right. helped this person or, yeah. you know, like he, uh, you know, he was, he was a kind of good person that does not need to shout about it. Yeah. Right. Uh, that's, uh, that can be a rarity for sure. Yeah. Um, uh, you mentioned a couple of times that you, uh, lived in Cairo for a while. What brought you to Cairo? Uh, I was, I was interested in the region. I was studying Arabic. Um, I had a job opportunity right out of college, which in the Great Recession was not was, uh, yeah. not usual. Yeah. <laughs> so you yeah, kind I of think, like took what fell in your lap. I think we all uh, we all got out of college about that same time. Then. Yeah, yeah. We all <laughs> right, where you're like, oh, this this yeah. expensive degree that is supposed to open yeah, all these I, doors. Right. Oh, a job. Suddenly... Okay, I'll take a job. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Does it, does it pay? Does it pay once a month? All <laughs> right. right, I'll take it. Sounds um, great. So yeah, it was, it was kind of serendipitous. Um, and, uh, but, but yeah, it was, it was, uh, an amazing place to be, uh, you know, for a young, young person who, who wants to be a writer for sure. Yeah. And you got a great book out of it, at least at the very yeah. least, <laughs> but I'm sure a lot more as well. Um, so, so you're doing Cairo for Vertigo and, Air is uh, under vertigo as well, correct? Or it mm -hmm. was uh, for DC. But then, uh, as far as I can tell, a few years after that, it's not too long after that, that you make a jump to Marvel. And when you're at Marvel, you make a pretty huge splash uh, with a character called Kamala Khan, who I'm sure yeah. you get asked about all the time. <laughs> but uh, uh, tell us kind of the genesis of creating this version of Ms. Marvel, was this something that Marvel was like taking pitches on? Did they want to relaunch the character? Did they reach out to you specifically? Like, how does this, how did this come about? They did. Yeah. It was um, not something I would have ever had the guts to pitch myself. I had just gotten done writing the relaunch of Mystic uh, yeah. Marvel had just acquired the cross-gen line and they had relaunched everything. Um, and as sometimes happens, didn't quite hit the way that they thought they were going to hit. But uh, Mystic did very well. We got a couple of Eisner nominations. 
uh, we launched it as a YA book, which at the time was considered very woe because, yeah. <laughs> you know, this was still at a time when uh, gritty was, was the vibe, you know, it's everything sure. is gritty, gritty superheroes, gritty, this gritty, that, yeah. you know, everything is dark and dripping. And what if Batman used a, a gun and all of this stuff? Yeah. Hold on a little bit too much for my taste. Like I gotta say, we're still, well, I think we're, we're sort of, you know, I, it, it went away and now yeah. it's coming back. We're sort of, it was right. a 20, there's sort of 20 year cycles. Yeah. Um, and so to do this, you know, book that was, explicitly for younger adults uh and teens and that was done in sort of a very animation sort of a way uh was very unusual at the time and Sana Amanat who at the time was an assistant editor under Steve Wacker at Marvel um had been talking with him about doing a YA book with an American Muslim superhero at the center of it and uh you know there was only one other uh, Muslim woman writer working in all of American comics at that point, and it was me. <laughs> so Sana <laughs> called me, and so we knew each other because, you know, at that point, especially the number of, uh, you know, American Muslims working in media was quite small. We all knew each other, all of us, every single, all two dozen of us. We all knew each other, <laughs> film, TV, comics, uh, you know, <laughs> music. We all knew each other. Sure. Um, and so, you know, she called me. Uh, and if you've listened to literally any other podcast that I've been on, you will have heard, heard me say this. Uh, <laughs> I actually got like a criticism somewhere on social media. that was like, you tell the story exactly the same way every single time. Like there should be a super cut of you telling this story because it's the same wording. I'm like, well, I get asked the same question. Yeah. What do you want me to um, do? You just send that yeah, was... response. You just send that <laughs> yeah. clip. It's like, all right, put this in the middle. <laughs> we'll yeah, work around it. In the um, and so, yeah, one day she just called me up and she was like, hey, we want to uh, create a new American Muslim superheroine and put her on her own book, her own ongoing yeah. title, um, which were words that I never expected to hear in that order uh, ever. Right. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, my, my reaction was basically, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure you want to do that? Um, you know, that just sounds like death threats to me. That sounds like endless death threats. Yeah. Uh, that sounds like you're going to need to hire security levels of death threats. Okay. Um, and they were like, no, we're serious. We're going to put some, you know, PR firepower behind it. Let's, let's make it happen. Wow. And I said, okay, if you're sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and yeah, you know, the rest is history. I, you know, I, I went in, uh, you know, first of all, it was, it was more, legwork on the front end than I had ever done for any other series in the sense of fleshing out the backstory, you know, figuring out the mechanics of, uh, you know, how her power set would work, what would it look like on the page. Um, and Sana, to her credit, was very exacting. She was like, we are not cheating at all because there was stuff that you can, there's stuff you can hand wave in sure. superhero comics. Yeah. Um, you know, like the first time that they appear in their costume, uh, you know, things like that, those moments, there's, there's stuff that you can cheat a little bit. Um, and Sana was like, no, there has to be a reason for her to have every single element of this costume. It has to be something that she could have theoretically made herself. Uh, it has to be materials that she would have easy access to. Every bit has to have a story. Um, so the granularity of the backstory of Kamala Khan is, uh, you know, could be a, a whole podcast series in and sure. of itself and yeah. went through many iterations. She did not start out as Ms. Marvel. She did not have a title at the beginning. Oh, wow. Um, that came in later because there, there needed to be an organic way to link her back to the rest of the Marvel universe. Because one thing you learn very quickly working in superhero comics is that Anybody can have a great idea for a new superhero, but if it is not connected to a world that fans are already invested in, um, it's it's dead before it gets out the door. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's an iceberg of which 10% are the new characters that made it sitting on top of 90% of the new characters that nobody ever heard from again. Yeah. Um, so we really worked very hard to, uh, you know, make this a character 
um, that people could connect to that felt like an organic extension of the Marvel universe that people already knew. Um, you know, there's, there's tons throughout the book of callbacks to, uh, you know, stuff within Marvel, there's in jokes, there's, there's visual gags, there's all kinds of things that reward, um, the obsessed reader, <laughs> you know, who, who like us has gone through many iterations of the X-Men and, and, and knows all of the different ins and outs of sure. various teams and all that stuff. Um, so, so yeah, yeah, it, it, it really was a labor of love and, uh, you know, wow, it, it, it showed <laughs> and yeah. the response was, was everything that we could have hoped for and more. Yeah. And I mean, huge props to Marvel at that time, I guess for, for one, even thinking that we need to hire a Muslim writer. Cause I feel like there's plenty of, uh, I feel like you can point to plenty of examples of people writing for a, a character that is part of a community that they don't necessarily identify with and maybe not fully understanding. So that alone, but then also just to be going forward without, without concern of a backlash. I mean, you seem to, maybe you uh, up front were, sh you know, you say you're shocked that, that they wanted to do that, but for them to even to continue with it and actually put it out, I feel like is, I, it's, I guess I'm surprised to hear that it was Marvel's idea fully and not. Well, I mean, you know, you know when we say Marvel, it, it is not one cognizant sure. entity. Sure. Um, <laughs> you know, it was, yeah. it was Sana and Steve's but, idea. Right. And I think, you know, because they had a good track record with the other things that they'd edited, uh, they had the leeway to take some risks. Yeah. But, you know, I think everybody, including me, thought that this was going to be a short term thing, um, you know, that was not going to suck up too much oxygen. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, like if there was a backlash, it was going to be muted. Like the be whole small. thing was going to be kind of muted. It was going to be small. Right. The scale yeah. of it was going to be small. Sure. Uh, the risk was small. The reward was small. Man. So, you know, I don't think anybody really internalized um, how big it could get, yeah. uh, including me. Um, and so, yeah, you know, like, I, I think it was, it was really, truly a perfect storm. Uh, you know, I think if, if Sana was not where she was, if I was not where I was coming out of, you know, having done a YA series that did very well and, and got some Eisner nominations. Right. Um, and, you know, it, it really was right team, right time, right audience. Right. Uh, yeah, and it's it very, you cannot plan those things. You, you think you can maybe, but you really can't. And, you know, I've had a lot of creators who are, you know, smart and driven and have great ideas and are incredibly talented who've said like, how, how did you make this happen? Because I've tried to do you know, X, Y, and Z in a similar vein, and it hasn't worked quite as well. And I was like, hey, you know, so much of it is timing. So much of it sure. is timing. Yeah. Um, and that's very difficult to control for. So we got really lucky. It was it was just the exact right team at the exact right time. Right. And speaking to the incredible popularity of the character, like you say that you know, seems like no one at Marvel really, really thought that it would be as that she would be as big as she is um which is huge uh what is it i mean it's kind of a it's not a very pointed question but like what is it like to have contributed an a-lister to <laughs> like coming from someone who you know is watching x-men cartoons as a little kid and reading the comic books now a character that you co-created is you know an, an a-list avenger you know, what's that feel like when you reflect on it? You know, it, weirdly enough, for me, it, it, it kind of caused a bit of a crisis because where do you go from there? Right, sure. Yeah. <laughs> what do you do after that? What do you follow yeah. that up with? Um, you know, I was I was still pretty young when, when um, the first issue of Ms. Marvel came out. Like, you know, it was, I started work on that series when I was, what, 29? Um and then the first issue came out when I was 30. So, you know, all of a sudden you, you, you're like, I, I can't believe it. Like there's, I've created something that will outlive me. Yeah. Uh, what wild. do I follow that up with? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I've, I've, I've still got to work for all these years. What do I do now? Yeah. Um, so, you know, like it, it was, 
the best and hardest thing that I'll probably ever do, I imagine. I, you know, like, I don't think a person gets two bites at that apple. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it was when it was going on to be in the middle of that maelstrom was a lot. It was a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, I went from nobody knowing who I was to getting recognized on the street on a semi-regular basis. Um, especially when I still wore hijab, sure. uh, like, you know, like on the subway in New York, you know, like, and here in Seattle on a very frequent basis. And, um, <laughs> uh, it, yeah, it was, it was just a really crazy time. I was going through my phone the other day and like deleting old messages and like freeing up space and all of this stuff and kind of, you know, going through contacts and being like, I don't know who you even remember who this is. Uh, I'm going to delete this person. Sure. And I found Riz Ahmad's phone number. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> because there was a brief period of time in the early 2010s when I was marginally more famous than he was, uh, because he was still just sort of like the the lead singer in uh you know like a British hip hop band. He right, had not yeah. broken out and done Star Wars and all of this stuff yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so there was there was like a, t- a teeny tiny period of time when he would occasionally be in touch and be like hey can you promote our new album on twitter (laughs) um and i was like wow this has been a really wild (laughs) 10 to 15 years oh my gosh um so yeah it it was crazy and there were a lot of death threats and there was there was massively rough sides to all this um you know like your your family doesn't sign up to be the family of a famous person right um much less an infamous person (laughs) so you know like there's there were dark aspects of this that i think nothing can really prepare you for sure um but oh my god it was it was like being on a roller coaster every single day (laughs) yeah yeah um uh speaking of uh ms marvel and famous people have you gotten to meet iman villani who plays her in the you know not in person i you know i chatted with her a couple times while they were all filming in thailand while the you know while they were filming the show um and she is just wonderful like you know she's she's who you see on the screen she, she started wonderful. out yeah oh yeah oh my gosh yeah she um yeah uh, the, the fact that she was a fan of ms marvel first and foremost that she was reading the books um and now gets to go back to her local comic shop and sign the yeah. you know copies of the book that she wrote of the character that she played on screen I mean, like you, you can't, yeah. If, if you wrote that in a book, people would be like, nah, it's too perfect. (laughs) You've got to change it, mess it up a little bit. It's too perfect. Um, But no, she's just really wonderful. She's really wonderful. And an extremely careful, attentive fan. Like she's, I feel like she's one of us first and foremost. She's a fan of this stuff. Um, You know, like she's, she's read the books. She's familiar with all of the different timelines and when things get rebooted and what this is and what this relationship to this is. Um, So, yeah, I mean, like it's, it's, she asks all the right questions, you know, like she's thinking about all the right things. And um, yeah, I mean, like, I just hope this is a slingshot for a long and storied career for her, uh, you know, as an actor as a writer uh, uh, and whatever else that she goes on to do. Cause she's, yeah, she's wonderful. Yeah. She does seem that way. That's good to hear. That's great to hear. Um, yeah, I was, I was going to say, I was confused when, like when you see the actor writing the book, it's like, yeah. Okay. Is this, are they just doing this for whatever reason? And then like, it was a very solid series too. Yeah, like, absolutely. She, like, yeah. It was like inception. Was, oh, it was, yeah, it was, <laughs> I was yeah, like, she much. wrote the, her, the, I, I don't know what's going on. You're writing yourself, <laughs> right. playing yourself. Yeah. Doing, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Totally crazy. That's gotta be tough. <laughs> That's gotta be tough. Um, Switching gears a little bit, I know that Steve is very excited to hear you talk about <laughs> a book you uh, currently have uh, ongoing at IDW called The Hunger and the Dusk, yes. which I've only read a little bit of, and I think it's incredible. Steve is uh, up to date, I believe. Um, what are, uh, tell us about Hunger and the Dusk. Like, how did this come to be? Because this is, it's a, like a high fantasy series, yeah. orcs right. and humans and that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's um, your standard orcs and humans trope. But it's not. But it's but not. It's not. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> 
that's pretty much it. That's how we've been pitching it. Yeah, I'm a longtime player of um, massive multiplayer online role-playing games. You know, your uh, World of Warcrafts, your Elder Scrolls, all that good stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, this comes through in Ms. Marvel. Ms. Marvel also plays MMOs. It's it's the backdrop of, of uh, uh, you know, one of the story arcs in the series. Um, and so, you know, I spend a lot of sort of passive time thinking about high fantasy stuff. Uh, you know, sometimes it, it's crunching numbers to figure out, you know, like hit caps and all of this stuff or, yeah. you know, min-maxing your... your <laughs> character for a certain role that in in you know whatever game you happen to be playing <laughs> but you know the lore as well is is something i think about and for years and years i've been sort of fascinated by the, by the way that orcs have evolved in fantasy games you know and we, we go from sort of the classic tolkien orc who's this creepy gross you know right. semi-intelligent yeah war creature who's only purpose really is to come on and be a bad guy and and uh uh you know to get from that to uh you know world of warcraft with thrall who's this kind of romantic hero who has this tragic past and is separated from his people and you know like he's big and he's buff and he's got all these powers and uh is is pretty incredible and i'm like huh what you know what has gone on in high fantasy to cause this evolution to occur. And, uh, you know, during lockdown, um, I had a lot of leisure to kind of think about this stuff. And uh, also because it was the apocalypse outside, <laughs> uh, when I had a, a story idea that was sort of like, what, what if we had a hot orc book with politics <laughs> and drama and all of this stuff? set during an environmental apocalypse, much like the one that we're going through now. Uh, In Seattle, we had two. We had two at the same time. So we had the pandemic, um, which meant you couldn't be inside with anybody else. And we also had the beginning of what are now yearly horrific forest fire seasons, where the air is so bad, you also cannot go outside. Mm. Um, And there was a time in there where I was like, oh my God, this really is the end of the world. This is what it feels like. There's a plague there's a fire, everything is dying, this is terrible. Um, and Hunger in the Dusk really came out of that. It's a, you know, it's a high fantasy story uh, with hot orcs in it. <laughs> sort of getting into that, that uh, you know, modern relationship between humans and orcs in fantasy that is very different from maybe the, the, the older Tolkien version that we kind of grew up with, um, set against an ecological apocalypse. Um, and, you know, ordinarily, this is not something I would pitch. Uh, you know, I don't do a whole lot of high fantasy. In fact, I've, I've never done high fantasy before. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's also because of the pandemic. I was like, life is too short. Life is too short not to pitch the hot workbook. Somebody will take it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so I pitched it um to mark at idw who i've known for a long time and uh and he was like yeah sure let's do a hot art book why not there you go yeah um and uh and and yeah chris wildgoose came on uh and he is incredible he is yeah. the most detailed sort of uh what story builder that i think i've ever met so you know if you're reading the hunger in the dusk and you're seeing these beautiful, elaborate costumes, you are only seeing layer one. He knows, because he has sent me all of these character sheets, what each of those characters is wearing underneath. So if there's armor on the outside, he's designed, okay, this is the robe that they're wearing underneath. These are kind of the undergarments that go beneath that. This is what this little symbol means. Uh, You know, like I, I put this inscription on this thing and this is what this means. Um, a couple of months ago, he, uh, he was like, oh, by the way, I invented the orc alphabet. You know, here it is. Here's everybody's names in orcish. As, as one does. Um, Why not? Yeah, just, just as, randomly. As just, just one day. Yeah. Out of the blue. You know, it was not <laughs> in the script. It was not anything. Wow. Um, so yeah, no, oh my gosh, it's been so much fun. Um, you know, I love working in shared universes which makes up the bulk of of what I do. But I have to say it is super fun to be 
one of two people who is in charge of the whole thing. Yep. Right. So it's just yep. me and Chris deciding what everything means. You know, we draw the maps. We <laughs> we, we oh, design the characters. That's, that's amazing. So yeah, if you are into high fantasy, if you are a World of Warcraft geek or an Elder Scrolls geek or anything of that nature, um, this is this is a book you need to oh. be reading. And the first volume comes out this summer. So if you haven't been reading the single issues, you can read volume one, which is collecting issues one through six and comes out in, I think, June. So yeah, super nice. exciting. Yeah, yeah, really think... can't recommend it enough. Um, yeah, it's been been great. And actually, uh, we've been seeing the praises of that enough to, I believe right now it is the number two poll at uh, Funky Town. At our That's comic, amazing. comic book store. Yeah. Se second yep. only to your other book. Holy crap. Poison Ivy. <laughs> yes. Poison Ivy? Yeah. Yes. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, please tell your customers that they have excellent taste. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, speaking of Poison Ivy, it was just nominated for a Glad Media Award for Outstanding Comic Book. Congratulations. That's great. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 really wonderful. Yeah, that book is, I think, another sort of right team, right time. Everybody was... was uh, yeah, as as soon as it all came together, everybody was super jazzed about it. And yeah. um, the fact that we're going into year three in this yeah, economy yeah. Right. is amazing. Because <laughs> right. it started, it was, it was supposed to mini, just be right. Yeah, it was a six issue mini, correct? At first, and then oh, got, it was yeah. Oh no, it's even worse than that. It started out as an eight page oh uh, short story in a Gotham Villains oversized annual. Oh yeah, okay, <laughs> the same yeah. one that Danny DeVito's Penguin yep. short was in. Um, that's the first time that we see Janet from HR is in that You're one right. little, yes. yeah, that one little eight pager. Um, and the six issue miniseries grew out of that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that was doing so well. And I think everybody was, was sort of ready for Ivy to have her own spotlight that they were like, let's do six more and then let's make yeah. it an ongoing. So <laughs> Uh, you know, I keep sort of, I, I always like to have anytime I'm working on a superhero, anything because of sort of the nature of, of the marketplace and the way they, these things go, I like to have sort of a three issue dismount in sure. a drawer somewhere for, for everything yeah. I'm working on. So, you know, Poison Ivy is one of those things where I'm like, is it going to end? Is it going to end? And it keeps <laughs> right. getting yeah. extended. So, so you've written the, <laughs> written the ending about three different times at this point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, it's it's amazing. So uh yeah, I've I've just I just this week got done uh you know chatting with Ariana, our wonderful editor, uh about year three. So we are uh oh, we are getting stuck in on year three. Ah, that's excellent. Um because it's kind of thinking about it, uh it's kind of like not quite the opposite, but it's a different end of the spectrum than like something like Ms. Marvel, where you're being brought in to create a new character from whole cloth and with poison ivy. You're being brought in to write a character that's been written so much and in so many different interpretations, like different, whether, you know, power set, personality or costumes or uh, design in general. Like, but is it intimidating to, to walk into, OK, we're giving you this classic DC villain, um, you know, don't screw it up. Yeah, don't <laughs> yeah, like and you you found a way to kind of really redefine her, I think, like it's probably my favorite version of poison ivy that i've ever read or watched or anything and 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 that goes for all those things i just mentioned power set personality like costumes like the overalls with the black tank top is like a classic look for ivy <laughs> now i like i just love yeah. it and like her fungus armor is excellent like how does it is it intimidating to be brought in to a character like that or do you not let that do you not think about like the history of the character and you're like i'm just gonna do what oh it's super intimidating it's super yeah. intimidating um you know ivy is my gosh she's she's more than 50 years old, more than 60 years old at this yeah. point um and you know is beloved by so many uh and as you say she's had so many different incarnations over the years because you know because she's a villain i think a lot of times she's kind of a character of convenience right so she's whatever the story needs her to be yeah uh you know like if if Batman needs her right now to be a seductress who's, you know, kind of cheesecake and her whole thing is like pheromones and all of this, mm -hmm. then that's what she is. Uh, other times she needs to be this kind of hardcore eco-terrorist. 
Uh, other times she's this kind of earth mama who's a bit of a hippie and, and you know, a little bit out to lunch. Um, uh, you know, there's even massive contradictions within the canon about what she eats. Uh, you know, like, is sure. she, there's, there's versions where she's a vegetarian. There's versions where people are like, that's ridiculous. If she is a plant, then that's, you know, cannibalism. So she's got to be a carnivore. Uh, so does she, does she even need to eat at all? Like, does she, she even need to right. see that's, <laughs> yeah. that's where I want to go. The next step is photosynthesis. photosynthesis. Like some sure. of yeah, exactly. Yeah. People. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's the next frontier. Yeah. Uh, so we can just bypass that, that argument, which happens every week on social media altogether. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was really intimidating. Uh, I think especially now that, that, uh, uh, you know, she and Harley Quinn have their own storyline that's kind of independent from anything yeah. else going on in the Batverse, you know, right. for, for the first time, I think these characters are kind of standing on their own two feet and are not reliant at all on what the Bat people are doing and, and right. sort of have their own destinies independent of that whole thing. Um, so yeah, it was, it was really intimidating. And I think Marcio, uh, to whom belongs the credit for both of the costumes that you mentioned, both right. the uh, the great, you know, the green coveralls with the work boots and like the black sports bra, which is amazing. And also super easy to cosplay, which I've noticed yeah, right. in which cosplayers have said, they're like, thank you. Like, yeah. usually I have to spend so much time, but this costume is so easy. Yeah, I don't have to paint um, my skin green. Yeah, I don't have to paint things. <laughs> I don't have to sculpt stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you've got this, you know, sort of mushroom queen yeah, so body cool. armor that's like so cool. weird yeah. and surreal and grotesque and gorgeous and so marcio takara uh is is the genius who is responsible for both of those um and uh yeah oh my gosh it's been so much fun um you know serendipitously she also has long-standing connections to seattle through her backstory with dr jason woodrew yep um, you know, who originally worked at a university, which is not UW, but <laughs> sort of. Um, so yeah, it was fun to sort of bring her across the country to Seattle and, and sort of yeah. put her against some of these iconic uh, backdrops in our fair city. So yeah, it's been a blast. Yeah, it is a blast. Um, uh, real quick, I know we're getting uh, towards the end of our time here, but uh, just to satisfy my little Batman nerdy heart, you seem to really like Killer Croc because um, you put him I in the Poison him. Ivy book and you, <laughs> the, the Batman black and white um, story that you wrote uh, is great. And it's real. I really love that story so much. And it's very Killer Croc centered. What is it about Killer Croc? Uh, I feel like he's probably not, he's not necessarily everyone's favorite villain. I love him as well. And you clearly have an affinity for him. What is it about Killer Croc that you love? You know, him? I think I love him because he's not a villain on purpose. Right. Um, you know, he's not like a penguin or a joker. Um, you know, he, he, he has the misfortune of being in a body that is terrifying to the vast majority of ordinary civilians. Yeah. And that's forced him into a life that he didn't choose for himself. Um, and, you know, I so I think the times in his history as a character, when he's been the most fun, is when you see him just sort of trying to live an ordinary life. Sure. Uh, but being unable to do so because he, he just can't exist in society, uh, you know, like the same way that most people can. Um, so I love him, you know, like, I, I think he's, he's almost sort of like a Cyrano de Bergerac type character. Sure. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, like of, of the underworld, the Cyrano of the underworld, he, he, <laughs> he just wants to be loved. You know, he just wants to have a normal yeah. life. Um, and he can't, he can't have any nice things. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I just, I love him. I, I think, uh, yeah, there's so many great villains in the Batman office. Each one mm -hmm. of them is so well built out. Um, and you know, like, I, I feel like you can, you can sort of write any number of stories about a lot of them, but Croc in particular, I think because he's got that softer side, uh, right. I yeah. really, really like, I really enjoy writing him. And, uh, so yeah, I just keep finding excuses to bring him back into <laughs> yeah. Poison Ivy so I can keep going. Right. Yeah. Cause he's like a character that, uh, not only can be scary, but he also, he can also be funny and he can also get a lot of like pathos out of him as well. Um, for the reasons that you just mentioned. Yeah. hundred percent. Good, good pairing for Ivy as well. Yeah, I think the, he's a good foil for Ivy because she does tend to be a little bit more, 
you know, like brooding, overthinking, yeah. uh, scheming, and he's he's not really a schemer. <laughs> no, yeah. So he there. can be he can sort of be the straight man who kinds of call kind of calls it like it is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and points out the things that maybe she doesn't want to notice. So yeah, yeah. they're a great pairing. Yeah. Um. Uh, kind of in general, just a couple like kind of general, maybe like writing questions for you. Um, as we wrap up here, but you know, you mentioned you were thinking about hunger in the dusk for a while during uh, quarantine when we weren't doing anything. Um, when you have an idea for something, I know it's probably different per project, but like how long do you kind of marinate on something? How do you know when it's ready to like start writing or like, do you outline, like what's your kind of process when you start approaching a new idea, whether it's a, uh, uh, your own idea like hunger in the dusk or if someone's like hey what would you do for poison ivy you know like is it what's the how long do you let things sit before they hit paper you know it really depends uh there are two very different challenges i think you know when it's a creator-owned book uh usually it's an idea that has been marinating in my brain for some time mm. and a lot of the time i don't know that it's a book until there's there's sort of a light bulb moment when I'm like, oh, this is a book now. It'll start out as something else. It'll start out as, you know, me playing an MMO and thinking about orcs and how they've changed over the decades <laughs> and sure. not really thinking about it in terms of a story until one day I do, until one day there's some sort of corner that gets turned and now it's a story. Um, whereas with uh, a company-owned book, uh, it's often, it's it's more like, a, more like, a cooking challenge where it's like, what, you, what can you make with these ingredients? And somebody pulls off, you know, the checkered cloth, like on the great British bake off or whatever. <laughs> and it's, you know, mushrooms, wild honey, and, you know, whatever olives. And, <laughs> and they're like, what can you do with these ingredients? Yeah. And that's a very different kind of challenge. That's, that's sort of a, okay, I really have to reach into my bucket of skills and figure out how I can make this particular thing look like I invented it myself, you know, effortlessly. Mm. Uh, and I love them both for different reasons because they're, they're challenging in very different ways. Um, so for the, you know, for the company owned stuff, uh, sometimes you get free range and they're sort of like, Oh, you know, well, what, what do you like about this character and go do that. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's, well, you know, we've got this event coming up and we'd like to use this character, uh, you know, or or pull this character out of the archives and bring them up to speed with this other thing. Um, and uh, you sort of have to put it all together in a way that makes sense and is satisfying to the readers. So, uh, you know, usually when it's a company owned book, there's a time horizon. So, you know, again, to go with the, with the, with the great British bake-off analogy, you know, you, the timer is set, sure. here are your ingredients, yep. <laughs> figure out how you can make something delicious out of this. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, with that, usually I'll, you know, like it's, it's, I'll have at most a couple of weeks, well, maybe not a couple, but maybe at most a month, month and a half to sort of decide how this is going to look what characters are going to come in, what the time horizon is, uh, you know, how we're going to make it work with this uh, event that's coming or this tie-in that's happening. Um, and, you know, it's nonstop, you know, like from the moment I get the assignment, it's I'm thinking about it while I'm making dinner and I'm thinking about sure. it while I'm walking around or at the gym or what have you. Um, and when I was younger, I would get kind of panicky, but now I know that it's it's just a matter of sort of waiting for it to gel like you know there's a lot of background process that happens yeah um and eventually it, it will sort of pop and i'll be like oh okay i get it now and sometimes it's it's just a matter of uh you know like sitting up one morning and be like you know eureka yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I figured it out in my sleep um yeah. just one little <laughs> one little connection that you didn't know you needed solves the whole one thing little thing yeah. yeah yeah it's it's yeah, at this point now, I kind of trust the process that right. I, I am thinking about it, even when I'm not actively thinking about it. Yeah. So even if it's not gelling right now, it will gel. I just there. sort of have to let the process run itself out. 
Yeah. Well, after this, cool. I, I 100%, like, while I'm playing my Shaman main later tonight, I'll have to uh, see what pops <laughs> into my head is the next great idea for me. Yeah. That, yes. No, I, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's that kind of thing where, you know, you think you think you are thinking about nothing. Yeah. But in right. fact, you're thinking about a lot of different things at once. You're working on it. Yeah. Um, like we said, we're like huge fans of yours. We think you're such a you're such a great storyteller. Um, and there you've done a lot of stuff. You write comics, you write novels, you write essays. A lot of times I read your work and I think uh, this could be a movie or this could like be adapted into a movie so well. Um, have you ever had any interest in writing a script or working on films or anything like that ever? You know, kind of, um, you know, I, I, I have gotten offers here and there, uh, to sort of move over into the film and TV space, usually connected to something, uh, within a larger universe, not something that I've written. Yeah. Um, I'm being cryptic because some of these things are NDA'd. Sure. Uh, <laughs> but I have to say, like, it's, I don't love it. I don't love it the same way I love right. the books. Obviously, there's a lot more money in film and TV. Um, and that's been a natural progression for a lot of comic book writers because uh, the way that you plot out a comic book is far more similar to the way that you plot out an episode of television than sure. it is to writing a novel, for example, um, because everything has to be visible. Whereas in a novel, you can ramble, <laughs> you know, right. a lot yeah. of it can be, uh, you know, just sort of the use of language. Whereas in film and TV, it all has to be visualized. So there's a natural, natural leap to be made uh, from comics to film or TV. Um, but, you know, with, with books, you get to stay in the metal you know, True. very close to the machine itself, uh, overseeing all of the moving parts, making sure everything fits together. Um, in film and TV, you're pretty far removed from the final yeah, product. That's true. That's true. Um, you know, and what you wrote, you may have made specific choices about structure and tone and stuff like that. But ultimately, you're just sort of writing a blueprint that's going to be uh, interpreted by other people and possibly right. in a very different way and it could be better it could be many times better than sure. any silly thing that you thought of uh so you know so what they come up with maybe an improvement but you know with a book you know you're zero degrees from the artist you're zero degrees from the reader right. like you're you're all sort of in it together and that that is really what i love you can see uh in a much more compressed period of time the impact of what you've written, you can make adjustments on the fly if you're writing an ongoing right. book based on how this lands or how this lands. You can set things up. You can sort of leave little tools for yourself, you know, months prior that you don't know if you're going to use. And then you pick them up six months later and you look like a genius because people thought right. you planned it all along. <laughs> but really, you're just good about sort of giving yourself enough to work with that you right. can invent things when you need to. Um, so, you know, I, I just sort of at one point discovered that that this is this is really what i love it's it's yeah. these books it's it's being this close to the end product and to the readers yeah. so it would have to be i think at this point something pretty special sure. to get me to you know uproot myself and possibly right. the family and go to la sure. yeah <laughs> yeah I, i'm not shocked to hear that you've been asked like i said i feel like a lot of your work would translate very well and I'll, i i was thinking about it as i was reading you know i think it was invisible kingdom i was reading it uh this past week and just thinking about how cinematic it is and also thinking like well james gunn has said he's working with tom king on that new dc universe i feel like g willow wilson would probably be a good addition <laughs> to that if he well wants listen to make a phone the call. film rights for invisible kingdom are still available so if anybody oh, wants to buy them <laughs> all right please be my guest uh, it would work it'd be great yeah. um uh I guess, you know, we're kind of at time. I don't want to keep you. You've been very generous with your time. Is there anything that you want to plug or make people aware of, of upcoming projects that we don't know about or just um, anything anything you want to let the people know about? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, volumes one and two of Poison Ivy, which uh, won a Galat Award this year and is up for another one this year, mm -hmm. are out now. Volume three is coming out soon. 
Um, Hunger in the Dusk, really, truly, if you have any kind of love for high fantasy, um, you know, I, I, not to toot my own horn, I'll, I'll toot Chris's horn. Chris Wild Goose is incredible. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's one of the most satisfying books that I've ever written. And I think wow. from what I've heard from readers, it's, it's very satisfying to read. So if you're not following along in single issues, please pre-order volume one, wherever you buy books, your local comic book store, your local indie bookstore, uh, online, wherever that is. Uh, it really does help for independent creator-owned books like this. So yeah, Hunger in the Dusk, volume one, pre-order now coming out this summer. And uh, yes, I promise you it's fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, Steve and I <laughs> co-sign on that as well. It's definitely, I'm someone that's not necessarily into high fantasy stuff. And like I said, I've only read an issue or two, but it is awesome. <laughs> it like pulled me right in. I was like, oh, I love this. That's great I to hear. Yep. Yeah, it's great. Really great. Um, well, again, G. Will Wilson, thank you so much for being on the Multiverse Report. Uh, it's been wonderful to talk to you. We're huge fans. We love all of your work. I hope that this wasn't just an hour of uh, compliment fest from us. Uh, we tried to, make <laughs> it, tried to make it a little bit more of an interesting conversation. Um, and yes, just thank you so much for being here. We really, really appreciate it. Can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Great. Well, uh, we will uh, say goodbye, but I hope that uh, we can get to have you back someday. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, let me know when the podcast goes up and I will tell people on the socials. You see oh, sure. just one social, now it's many. <laughs> yeah. So many. This fallout so of Twitter many. is just is. Oh my God, yes. It's, I don't even know. I don't even know what's going on anymore. Yeah. What's going to be there in six months or where people are. So yeah. who knows? Check three, different, them, three different apps to follow the people that I was used to be following on one. It's such yeah. a I know, I know. It's yeah. terrible. Here we are. Yep. <laughs> Here we are. Exactly. Here we are. 2024. That's good. That's right. <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much again. And um, it's been great talking to you. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Yeah, absolutely. Take care. Thanks. Great to you talk too. to you both. Bye. Thank you. Bye.